the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Bob Moffitt. He's a senior fellow in health policy studies, specializing in health care and entitlement programs. We'll talk about the president's expansion of the health reimbursement accounts to improve health care choices that might benefit uh, many small business owners and their employees. We'll also talk with Joel Fitzpatrick. He's the author of Between Us Guys, um, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons. He's also a pastor and will be joining us uh, to talk about his very practical book to help dads along the way. First, a quick look at some of the news. The U.S. Trade Representative Office is set to hold public hearings that will focus on the new round of 25% tariffs the Trump administration plans to slap on $300 billion in imported Chinese items not already hit with levies, including toys, shirts, household goods, and sneakers. The president has already imposed 25% tariffs on $250 billion of goods from China and has said a new round of tariffs are needed to force the nation to end unfair trade practices. Meanwhile, more than 600 companies and trade associations, including Walmart and Target, have signed a letter telling the president that an escalating trade war with China will hurt families, jobs, and the U.S. economy. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she warned Sunday there is a very real risk the president will win re-election on, in 2020, sparking a rare response of its kind from the president. I agree. I think that we have a very a real risk of losing the presidency to Donald Trump. Well, you don't lose what you don't have, but what she means is in the next election, if we do not have a presidential candidate that is fighting for true transformational change in the lives of working people in the United States. She was speaking on ABC News with John Carl on this week in her first Sunday morning show appearance since she took office in January. The president quoted the congresswoman in a tweet on Sunday night, adding, I agree, and that is the only reason they play the impeach card, which cannot be legal used. Ocasio-Cortez said that she did not see herself endorsing a particular candidate anytime soon. Still, one must wonder if ultimately she would support Senator Bernie Sanders, who told Fox News Chris uh, Wallace on Fox News Sunday that a political revolution is needed um, uh, to uh, for real change in this country it that way. Well, Iran is set to break its uranium stockpile limit set by the nuclear deal within 10 days, according to a spokesman for the country's atomic agency. The comment was broadcast live during a news conference on Iranian state television today, uh, local time. A spokesman um, spoke to journalists in Iran at the um, Iraq heavy water facility. Uh, He acknowledged that Iran has already quadrupled its production of low enriched uranium. And Mayor Pete Buttigieg doesn't believe he'll be the first uh, gay president if elected in 2020. I would imagine we've probably had excellent presidents who are gay or who were gay. We just didn't know which ones, he told Axios on HBO. I mean, statistically, it's almost certain. 
well, if 3% of the population, I'm not sure that statistically bears out, but asked if uh, he possibly knew which commander-in-chief was gay. The Democratic hopeful said, my gaydar even doesn't work that well in the present, let alone retroactively, but one can only assume that that's the case. Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, has been rising in the polls and would be the first openly gay presidential candidate if nominated next year. And the trial of a decorated Navy SEAL charged with killing an ISIS prisoner and his care is set to begin with jury selection today. Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher had pled not guilty to premeditated murder and the killing of an ISIS prisoner and attempted murder and the shooting of two Iraqi civilians in 2017. The politically charged case has included the removal of the lead prosecutor for tracking the defense team's emails and suggesting uh, by uh, suggestions rather by President Trump that he may pardon the defendant. And in the constant, uh, uh, the contest of guts and nerve and skill that was the final round of the 119th U.S. Open, Gary Woodland was the last man standing. Woodland, 35, shot a two under par, 69 at Pebble Beach Golf Links to win his first career major and uh, deny Brooks Kopetka, 68, the chance to become the first man to win three straight U.S. Opens in more than a century. Kopetka had the had to settle for a footnote in history as the first player to record four rounds in the 60s uh, at the U.S. Open without winning. And President Trump said he'll be rolling out a new health care plan in a couple of months, saying it will be a key focus of his 2020 reelection campaign. According to The Hill, Republicans failed to pass health care reform, even with congressional majorities. So this plan will be geared toward rallying the troops for the 2020 elections. If successful, we can only hope that Republicans have finally learned a lesson. And House Democrats are set to move funding for most of the federal government this week, even as lawmakers have struggled to reach a budget cap deal. The two packages known as minibuses will cover nine of the 12 individual appropriations bills that Congress needs to pass by the 1st of October in order to avoid the second government shutdown of the year. And the United Kingdom will send elite forces to the Gulf of Oman to protect its warships amid rising tensions with Iran, according to the Sunday Times. The planned deployment follows Thursday's attacks on two oil tankers, which the U.S. has blamed on Iran. And the United States is stepping up digital incursions into Russia's electric power grid in a warning to uh, President Vladimir Putin and a demonstration of how the Trump administration is using new authorities to deploy cyber tools more aggressively, current and former government officials uh, said. MoveOn.org kicked off a nationwide campaign to impeach President uh, Donald Trump Saturday with a series of impeach Donald Trump rallies and a day of action meant to inspire the far left to pressure congressional lawmakers to undertake impeachment proceedings. But if their intent was to create the impression that hundreds of thousands of Americans stood at the ready, well, they fell short. Uh, The efforts failed miserably across the country. Turnout was sparse, even in dedicated leftist strongholds. Now, keep in mind, this was also the weekend For gay pride events, that may have uh, had an impact on those numbers. And according to the Associated Press, African migrants are a burgeoning source of illegal immigration. They're immigrating from places like the Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Angola and Cameroon. The explosion in immigration to the United States from sub-Saharan Africa coincides with a steep drop in the migration flow across the Mediterranean to Europe after European countries and two main embarkation points, Turkey and Libya, decided to crack down. And an atheist group has dropped an attempt to strip American pastors of their tax-exempt 
uh, exemption for housing. The Freedom From Religion Foundation will not appeal an appeals court decision that said the federal government is allowed to exempt priests, pastors, rabbis, and other religious instructors from paying taxes on the housing they receive, ending an eight-year legal battle. And on this day in 1972, President Richard Nixon uh, eventual downfall begins with the arrest of five burglars inside the Democratic headquarters in Washington, D.C.'s Watergate complex. On this day in 1994, after leading police on a slow speed chase on Southern California freeways, O.J. Simpson is arrested and charged with murder in the slayings of his ex-wife, Nicole, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. On this day in 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court in Abingdon, Pennsylvania, school district versus Shemp strikes down eight to one rules requiring the recitation of the Lord's Prayer or reading of biblical verses in public schools. And on this day in 1928, Amelia Earhart embarks on a transatlantic flight from Newfoundland to Wales with pilots Wilmer Stoltz and Lewis Gordon, becoming the first woman to make that trip with a passenger. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. As I mentioned earlier, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll be talking with Bob Moffitt. He's a senior fellow with Health Policy Studies, and we'll be talking about the uh, Trump expansion of the health care reimbursement account to help small business owners and their employees with health care. We're also going to talk with Pastor Joel Fitzpatrick, author of Between Us Guys, li- uh, Living... I've written this wrong here, and this is the last time I'm ever going to have to say it. Uh, Life-changing conversations with dads and sons. There you have it. I'm done. I'm not going to refer to it again until I've written it correctly. Anyway, you might recall today is also an anniversary. In 2015, nine people are shot to death in the historic Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The suspect, Dylan Roof, is arrested the following morning. What's interesting about this story uh, is that the church responded in a way that was altogether unexpected. They received a lot of flack for extending forgiveness to this uh, shooter who entered the church, said he wanted to participate in Bible study, and then set about uh, murdering those who were seated around him after he had been welcomed into the predominantly African-American church. Well, Iran announced today it intends to smash the strict uranium stockpile limits set under the nuclear deal it struck with the world's leading powers. The hardline country's shock statement is another blow to a pact already crumbling since the U.S.'s high-profile withdrawal. Today, the countdown to pass the 300 kilograms reserve of enriched uranium has started, and in 10 10 days... Um, we will pass that limit. That's a quote from Iran's nuclear um, energy organization spokesman. This is based on the Article 26 and 36 of the nuclear deal and will be reversed uh, once other parties live up to their commitments. Well, Kamal uh, Vandi acknowledged the country has already quadrupled its production of low enriched uranium. The news is bound to ramp up tensions between Iran and the West already at breaking point following the shock bomb attack of two tankers in the Gulf of Oman. And we learned earlier today that the um, Pentagon has approved a thousand troops in the area that will protect those uh, vessels trying to make their way to and from the Straits of Hormuz. U.S. crude oil imports from Saudi Arabian-led OPEC fell to a 30-year low, according to the latest federal figures. OPEC imports fell to 1.5 million barrels per day in March, which is the lowest level since March of 1986. The U.S. Energy Information Administration reported 
Last Thursday, the Energy Information Administration said OPEC imports fell as domestic crude oil production has increased. Well, the threat against um, American energy security has shifted from OPEC to the halls of Congress, where members talk of the green raw deal and carbon taxes that could torpedo our energy miracle. Mr. Kish says Dan Kish is a distinguished uh, senior fellow at the Institute for Energy Research, speaking to the Daily Signal. Americans are no longer dependent on foreigners for their energy, and Americans are getting good jobs producing that oil and gas right here at home. Well, the last time Americans were as this independent from OPEC oil, former President Ronald Reagan was in office, and Halley's, uh, Halley's Comet was visible in the night sky. The Energy Information Administration also noted that U.S. sanctions on Venezuela drove imports to a record low, including periods when the U.S. took no oil from it at all. And in other news, the wife of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has agreed to a plea deal in connection with allegations that she misused about $100,000 in government money. Under terms of the agreement, Sarah Netanyahu, 60, has been sentenced to pay a fine of roughly $15,000, the Associated Press reported. A Jerusalem magistrate court accepted the plea agreement on Sunday. Mrs. Netanyahu, who has... Uh, who. Um, has been married to the prime minister since 1991, had been accused of running up large tabs at luxury restaurants, even though the prime minister's official residence employed a full-time chef. Her lawyer claimed in court that the case lacked merit and was brought solely as a political smear directed at her husband. The state's attorney's office said that she will pay additional fines to conclude the case. Mrs. Netanyahu was uh, indicted on fraud and breach of trust charges last year. Under the plea deal, she admitted guilt on lesser charges. Meanwhile, the prime minister, 69, still faces an indictment on corruption charges of his own and a reelection is um, on the, the docket as well. Leaders in Hong Kong are considering their next move after thousands of protesters filled the streets over a controversial extradition bill. Hong Kong's message to Beijing is loud and clear. That city won't succumb to creeping Chinese control and the rest of the world shouldn't either. Well, the crowds filling the streets between Hong Kong's thin skyscrapers uh, want to uh, protect their autonomy, their free speech and the basic rights against an insidious tide of Chinese Communist Party influence. What started as a rally at the legislature against the extradition bill is now an unforgettable moment for this city of seven million. Before this week, I'd never been on a protest, said one 28-year-old Hong Kong resident, speaking uh, to Britain's The Guardian. We are watching the people of Hong Kong speak about the things they value, said Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, to Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. Hong Kong's protests are a massive repudiation of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power. Hong Kong is also showing the world that Trump was right. It's high time to confront China. Now, what cost will be exacted is not yet clear. We all remember the anniversary of Tiananmen Square wasn't that long ago. Hong Kong's uh, protests are a massive repudiation. Beijing would love to make Hong Kong shut up. Hong Kong was a thriving British colony from 1842 to 1997. But Hong Kong depended on supply from the mainland. China was getting stronger, and it seemed like time to welcome China to the Western economic and financial system. Still, when Britain handed over control in 97, Hong Kong made a great deal. China leaders Deng Xiaoping promised to Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy until 2047. Just as a reminder, this is 2019. Hong Kong kept its own court system, the most of uh, uh, its legal and institutional protections of a Western democracy under the doctrine of one country, 
two systems. Well, that included free speech and unrestricted Internet access and street rallies. Privileges rarely seen in mainland China were afforded in Hong Kong. Uh, which is the financial hub and residents exercise their free speech rights with events like the so-called umbrella protests of 2014 and annual remembrances on the 4th of June 1989's Tiananmen Square incident. Yes, it's remembered and recognized there. The cherished element of the agreement was that Hong Kong would not allow extradition to mainland China. You can imagine why. Well, the new bill to permit Taiwan, mainland China, and other jurisdictions to extradite fugitives was fairly underhanded. Just plugging a loophole and catching criminals, Hong Kong's leadership claim, not so fast, China doesn't have an independent justice system. Hong Kong does. The extradition measure, if passed by Hong Kong's legislature, would let Beijing pick up political dissidents or uh, really anyone in Hong Kong. In this uh, jewel of a city, people could just disappear. Well, small protests began in March. Hong Kong executive uh, Carrie Lam said the bill would would not apply to political crimes. Few believed her. Lam was appointed directly by Beijing, and she had put the extradition bill on a 20-day fast track. Well, that has all changed, and the protests continue. Uh, they have not uh, ended altogether, nor is the uh, legislation that was put on hold uh, nor has that been scrapped. So the back and forth continues and seeing if uh, Hong Kong can hold out until 2047, as was originally agreed, will be an interesting exercise uh, for them to carry out. Here at home, the Supreme Court on Monday threw out a ruling against two Oregon bakers who refused to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. The couple, Melissa and Aaron Klein, cited religious beliefs as their reason for not providing services for the wedding. This touched off the latest in a series of uh, cases making headlines in recent years. Well, during the court's last term, justices ruled in favor of a Colorado baker in a similar situation, stating that a state body demonstrated improper hostility toward the baker's religion in finding that he violated a state anti-discrimination law. They didn't rule directly on the merits of the case, whether or not an individual, an artist, if you will, can, based on their religious beliefs, uh, decline to serve certain events or certain clients. Well, on Monday... The Supreme Court sent the Klein case back down to a lower court for further consideration in light of their Colorado decision. Well, the central disputes in the case, which pits LGBT rights against religious freedom considerations, have yet to be addressed by the Supreme Court, kicking that can, which ultimately they will have to take up down the road. Well, a similar case involving Washington State florist Baronel Stutzman previously was sent back to the state uh, so that they could review its decision against her in light of the Colorado case. And as we discussed last week, the Washington Supreme Court upheld its own decision and the case is expected to go back before the Supreme Court once more. Well, the Kleins case arose when Rachel Bowman Cryer went to them in January of 2013 to see about a wedding cake. When Aaron Klein asked for information, including the name of the groom, she told him there was none. Klein then uh, said the bakery does not make cakes for gay weddings. Uh, as in similar cases, uh, they had served the gay individual but would not be willing to serve uh, to support an event. Well, Bowman Cryer's mother, who was uh, with her, said Klein quoted the Bible when explaining the decision. The Kleins had to pay $135,000 judgment to the couple for discriminating against them in violation of a state public accommodation statute. They ended up closing down their bakery. They represented that were represented by First Liberty, who celebrated the Supreme Court's decision as a win. Well, not so much, not so fast. This is a victory for Aaron and Melissa and for religious liberty for all Americans, First Liberty 
President Kelly Shackelford said in a statement, the Constitution protects speech, popular or not, from condemnation by the government. The message from the court is clear. Government hostility toward religious Americans will not be tolerated. Well, it certainly does uh, require that the state of Oregon or whichever body is ultimately responsible for making the original decision uh, revisit their decision. But as in the case of Baronelle, uh, they simply decided without much uh, time or attention given uh, that they had done the right thing. Again, the Supreme Court will ultimately have to decide whether or not there is a freedom in the Constitution to decline certain activities based on one's religious beliefs. When we return, we'll talk about another ruling from the Supreme Court dealing a potential blow to Paul Manafort as he battles state charges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Supreme Court ruling in the case of an Alabama man who pled guilty to a gun charge could have major implications for the unrelated white-collar case against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort in New York by keeping him exposed to another set of charges, even if he ultimately wins a presidential pardon. At issue in the Alabama dispute was whether the dual sovereignty doctrine, which allows a person to face both state and federal charges for the same offense, violates the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled... It does not. And although the dual sovereignty rule is often dubbed an exception to the double jeopardy right, it is not an exception at all. That's a quote from Justice Samuel Alito in the opinion. On the contrary, it follows from the text that defines that right in the first place. Well, this clears a path for prosecutors in New York to continue their case against Manafort, who already has been convicted of federal crimes that include bank and tax fraud. Had the court ruled the other way in Monday's case, Gamble versus United States, and eliminated the dual sovereignty doctrine, a pardon from President Trump would have left Manafort free and clear. Of course, the president hasn't said he will pardon him, so that's somewhat hypothetical. With the doctrine still in place, a New York um, case complicates matters since presidential pardons only affect federal cases, not state cases. No one is beyond the law in New York, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance said in a statement when the indictment was announced. Manafort is facing 16 counts in that indictment, including conspiracy, residential mortgage fraud, and falsifying business records. The charges are based on allegations similar to ones related to his federal conviction. But not the same. Earlier this month, a judge agreed to have Manafort transferred from his federal prison in Pennsylvania to New York's notorious Rikers Island as he awaits trial. The Gamble case, meanwhile, involved a man who was first convicted of a state gun possession charge following a guilty plea, then indicted in federal court for the same possession. He pleaded guilty in that case, too, only to appeal with the argument that the federal charge violated double jeopardy. Alito explained that the double jeopardy clause prohibits multiple prosecutions for the same offense, but an offense is defined by a law, and each law is defined by a sovereign. Therefore, Alito said, where there are two sovereigns, there are two laws and two offenses. So if there's a state law and a federal law, and they were each violated respectively, you can be held accountable for each. Alito's opinion was joined by Justices Clarence Thomas, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, Um, Elena Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, as well as Chief Justice John Roberts. Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch each wrote dissenting opinions, marking the latest case that saw Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, both Trump nominees, on opposing sides. Ginsburg viewed the double jeopardy clause as barring successive prosecutions by parts of the whole USA, noting that the United States and the individual states compose one people bound by an overriding federal constitution. 
Gorsuch pointed to historical interpretations, including those from when the Fifth Amendment was adopted in 1791, which suggested that a prosecution in any court, so long as the court had jurisdiction over the offense, was enough to bar future reprosecution in another court. Well, the conservative justice railed against the idea that a person in the United States should be allowed to be charged for the same thing in two separate cases. A free society does not allow its government to try the same individual for the same crime until it's happy with the results. Later in the program, we'll talk with Bob Moffitt. Uh, he's a health policy specialist, and we're going to talk about the expansion that has been proposed and will take effect in January of 2020, um, the expansion of the health reimbursement account. Um, but I noted that Kevin Pham, writing for the Daily Signal, pointed out that rising support uh, for socialism in the United States comes at a time when politicians like Senator Bernie Sanders promise a great many free services to be provided or guaranteed by the government. Well, supporters often point to nations with large social programs. They point to Canada, the United Kingdom, Scandinavian states, particularly when it comes to health care. Never mind that these are not true socialist countries, but highly taxed market economies with large welfare states. Uh, that aside, they do offer a government-guaranteed health service that many in America wish to emulate. Well, the problem for their argument is that despite these extremely generous programs, some of these countries are seeing steady uh, uh, growth in private health insurance. Medicare for All, the prominent socialized medicine proposal in the United States, is most similar to the Canadian system in which providers um, bill the regional office administering the program. In Medicare for All, there would be no cost-sharing schemes and all coverage would be comprehensive, including prescription drugs, dental, vision, and other services deemed necessary by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. But the Scandinavian system is similar to Medicare for All in the respect that they use regional offices to administer reimbursements to providers. Yet they differ in some critical ways that are worth considering if we are moving in that direction. They employ cost-sharing for certain services. They are less comprehensive in their coverage and they allow for private health insurance plans to uh, complement or supplement the government system to cover out-of-pocket expenses and to circumvent wait times or rationed access to specialists. Now, these are precisely the things that Medicare for All would abolish. It's intriguing that while socialists in America would rush to nationalize the health care system, Norwegians, Swedes, and the Danes are all gradually increasing their use of private health insurance. Between 2006 and 2016, the portion of the population covered by private insurance increased by 4% in Sweden, 7% in Norway, and 22% in Denmark. The increases in Sweden and Norway are modest but noteworthy, considering that most out-of-pocket payments have a relatively low annual limit. The private plans in Sweden and Norway are mainly designed to supplement the government-run plan. In addition to covering out-of-pocket costs, these plans also guarantee prompt access to specialists or elective procedures, which the state plans often fail to provide. Denmark also allows complementary insurance plans which cover services that are partially or not at all covered by the national system, including dental and vision services. This growing European interest in private health insurance typically stems from dissatisfaction with the state-run systems, which often provide poor or incomplete coverage and long wait times. By contrast, private plans offer wider coverage, shorter wait times, access to private facilities, and more flexibility in patient, uh, patient choice. So something to consider as uh, the advocates for Medicare for all insist this would be a better program for the United States. 
Meanwhile, Planned Parenthood joined several other groups in suing the Trump administration on Tuesday over the conscience rule, which would allow health care workers to refuse to conduct abortions due to religious or moral beliefs. One's conscience would be considered irrelevant. The lawsuits were filed in Manhattan federal court over the rule that is set to go into effect on the 22nd of next month. Reuters reports the Department of Health and Human Services conscience rule protects individuals and health care entities from discrimination on the basis of their exercise of conscience in HHS funded programs. Uh, Among those suing the Trump administration to block the rule are Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, Inc., the National Family Planning and Reproductive Health Association, and Public Health Solutions, Inc., according to Reuters. The organization said if the rule is passed, it could affect more than 613,000 health care centers around the country. Now, keep in mind, we've had a conscience provision for many, many years prior to this most recent debate. Uh, so it would return things more to what was commonly the case. But they go on to say that trust is the cornerstone of the f- physician-patient relationship. Uh, Leanna Wynn, who is Planned Parenthood's president, said in a statement that no one should have to worry if they will get the right care or information because their provider's personal beliefs. Well, a number of Democratic-leaning states and municipalities sued the U.S. government uh, in May over the announced rule, according to the Washington Post. HHS said it is prepared to defend the bill against its opponents, the department did not respond to a request for comment in uh, uh, in this particular case, but they have already stated they will uh, fight uh, for the right to allow those with conscience or religious objections two separate things can be two different things uh, to decline to engage in an activity that violates their core values. Meanwhile, lawmakers intended with the 2017 tax cuts not only to promote economic growth, job creation and allowing American families to keep more of their hard earned money, but also to make the federal tax code more neutral toward state tax policy. But state based tax credit scholarship programs got unintentionally caught up in the broader reform. This has to do with school choice. Uh, which, by the way, has a significant impact or at least has the potential to have a significant uh, impact for uh, those who are impacted by underperforming schools and particularly minority communities. Um, now available to more than 270,000 students in 18 states, tax credit scholarship programs allow state taxpayers to receive a full or partial credit against their state tax obligations if they contribute to nonprofit organizations that grant scholarships to eligible children so they can attend a private school of their choice. They're an important and growing tool for expanding school choice. Well, the Treasury just saved them from what could have been a crippling blow. The new tax law placed a cap of $10,000 on the amount taxpayers could deduct from their federal taxes for state and local taxes, which advanced the bipartisan goal of of, uh, treating similar taxpayers similarly by diminishing the previously unlimited subsidy for high taxes in states like California and Connecticut. To implement the cap, as intended, the Treasury Department released proposed regulations that disallowed use of new state schemes set up uh, to game the charitable deduction and circumvent the cap. But legitimate state-based tax credit scholarship programs were included in that rule, which means the ability to donate was limited for the 10% of taxpayers who itemize but don't max out their deductions for state and local taxes. Well, in some cases, the cost of donating would increase from zero to as much as 37% of the donated amount. Well, in the final regulation and accompanying notice, which is required for these things to take effect, the Treasury fixed the problem and reestablished the federal tax system's neutrality towards state tax credit programs 
as recommended. Well, the notice allowed donors to scholarship programs to still take the deduction for state and local taxes up to the cap of $10,000. A new rule codifying this will be proposed in a few months. Well, the new regulations and the guidance means there is no new tax cost for taxpayers who donate to a state tax credit scholarship program. And this preserves every state taxpayer's ability to airmark their tax payments for increased education choice. So kudos in making that fix. I wish it was always that easy and straightforward. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Also coming up in our next hour, we'll talk with Pastor Joel Fitzpatrick, author of Between Us Guys, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, and what is hard to characterize as anything other than poetic justice, Oberlin College and its former vice president and dean of students, Meredith Romando, have been hit by an Ohio jury with a multi-million dollar judgment for liable and intentional infliction of emotional distress against a local family business, Gibson's Bakery and Candy, which led to a boycott of the bakery over false charges of racism. What began as a simple shoplifting incident took on a life of its own because the bakery's proximity to one of the country's Uh, preeminent institutions of political correctness and progressive thought. It demonstrates the dangers of jumping to conclusions before the facts are in and the damage done by false charges of racism. Hans von Spakovsky writes that Gibson's Bakery is a century-old business owned and operated by three generations of the Gibson family. On the 9th of November 2016, the day after President Donald Trump's electoral victory, a black Oberlin student shoplifted two bottles of wine from Gibson's after he uh, first tried to buy them with a fake ID. He was chased out of the store by the Gibson grandson. This was the 41st shoplifting incident in five years. Forty adults had been arrested previously, including six African-Americans, only six out of the 40. When the grandson tried to take a picture of the shoplifting student with his phone, he was knocked down and assaulted by the student and two of the student's friends. Now, this is an Oberlin student who was attempting to shoplift. When the police arrived on scene, they found Gibson on his back with the three undergraduates punching and kicking him. All three were charged, the thief with robbery and his two friends friends with assault. Ordinarily, stealing from a private establishment wouldn't merit a national news story or a libel lawsuit, but because the Gibson family is white and the student black, Oberlin's ceasingly woke campus erupted with cries that the bakery was engaged in racial profiling of a student and was a racist establishment. Um, We know this isn't true because the shoplifting student and his pals eventually pled guilty to misdemeanor charges, including attempted theft, aggregated, aggravated trespassing and underage purchase of alcohol. Now, as part of their plea bargains, they admitted committing the crimes and that the actions of the baker had not been racially motivated. No discrimination had occurred. These are the three perpetrators have made this admission. But the students and the administrators at Oberlin College weren't interested in the facts. And this all happened before the big furor erupted. Instead, they immediately acted against Gibson's. For example, a flyer was distributed making the false claim that the bakery was a racist establishment with a long account of racial profiling and discrimination and urging an economic boycott. The president of the university, along with its vice president and dean of students, sent out an email trying to excuse the students' behavior by blaming it on the outcome of the presidential election. So apparently it was Trump's fault. They were deeply troubled because we have heard from students that there is more to the story than what was generally reported. Well, there was certainly more to the story, but it wasn't what they were uh, suggesting. 
Oberlin ignored the findings of the police investigation that found no evidence of racism or the statements from the three who were uh, purportedly uh, the subjects of racism. Oberlin ignored all of that. Instead, they suspended their longtime business relationship with Gibson's. Oberlin faculty and administration helped students copy and distribute flyers against the bakery, orchestrated and attended protests against the bakers, and actually gave students academic credit for skipping classes and participating in the boycott campaign. Well, an Oberlin trustee paid the legal retainer for a criminal defense attorney for the shoplifting student and the university provided the student with a limo to transport him to meet the lawyer. In a private meeting with the Gibsons, the college demanded that the bakery institute a policy of not filing criminal charges against first-time student shoplifters or call the police. So apparently it didn't matter if you were doing it for the first time. According to the complaint, a Facebook rant was posted by Oberlin's Department of African Studies, claiming that the bakery had been bad for decades. This, their dislike for black people is palpable. Their food is rotten and they profile black students no more. Now, again, out of the 40 incidents, only seven of them were, were African-American. Uh, the Washington Post writes that court documents also revealed how uh, Raimondo and the other administrator shared a sense of outrage after a professor spoke against the school's boycott, uh, saying, expletive him, I'd say unleash the students if I wasn't convinced this needs to be put behind us. Well, expletive laced comments from the vice president and the dean of students at what U.S. News and World Report ranks as the country's 30th best liberal arts school. All of these actions devastated the bakery's revenue, which forced staffing cuts. At least six members of the Gibson family were forced to work without pay for months just to keep the business afloat. Social justice fervor is nothing new at uh, Oberlin campus. In the past five years, students have protested against the cultural uh, inauthenticity of dining hall cuisine, requested trigger warnings for storied work of Western civilization, submitted a 14-page letter to the school's board and president with 50 non-negotiable demands that are the essence of political correctness. That letter claimed that Oberlin functions on the premise of imperialism, white supremacy, capitalism, ableism, and the cis-sexist heteropatriarchy. You can look all of that up. And it demanded that the college offer guaranteed tenure to an African-American professor who claims that the U.S. and Israel planned the 9-11 attacks. Now, it's interesting that the school itself had been accused of the very things that now the school is accusing the bakery of having done and perhaps overreacted in an attempt to demonstrate that they're not any of the things they've been accused of in facing the students' demands. Well, student complaints about the cultural appropriation of food centered around using incorrect ingredients, such as substitutions for a traditional Vietnamese banh mai chow bada bread, a pulled pork and coleslaw instead of a crispy baguette with grilled pork, pate, pickled vegetables, and fresh herbs. How dare they? Even today, the facts apparently don't matter. In late April, the Oberlin Review wrote that a black student attempted to make a purchase at Gibson's Bakery and was accused of shoplifting. The student ran outside the store and the son of the owner and the student got into a physical altercation. Well, that phrasing makes the shoplifting seem like an innocuous misunderstanding between a student and a rash shopkeeper rather than a century-old family-owned bakery being looted in an undergraduate's attempt to subvert state drinking laws. Now, this was an underage student who stole um, alcohol that they were not legally um, permitted to have. And according to the lawsuit, guides uh, giving campus tours sponsored by Oberlin have continued to tell prospective students to boycott the bakers because of its racist establishment that assaults students. 
Well, just as the student body still views the case as a sign of racism, presumably in an effort to divert attention away from their fellow undergraduates' culpability, so too the school refuses to take responsibility even after the recent verdict. In an email to the school's alumni association, Oberlin claimed it was not responsible for the actions of its students, even though it fomented those actions, denying the reality of the college's participation in and instigation of the unfair actions taken against the bakery. The jury awarded $11 million in compensatory damages, $33 million in punitive damages. The college certainly has the ability to pay the judgment. Oberlin's endowment is just under $890 million, and tuition is $52,762 per year as of 2018. Well, the case shows how much damage false claims of racism can cause. And for that matter, you can fill in other words that are equally used to disarm Uh, sometimes innocent people. And it shows just how infected school administrators and many students are with an absurd victimization culture that predominates in academic culture and how ridiculous claims of imperialism, white supremacy, capitalism, ableism and cis sexist heteropatriarchy are in poisoning their minds. Just one example. But this time around, they'll be paying up. Well, Planned Parenthood will host a forum in late June with major Democratic presidential candidates where the candidates will face one-on-one questioning about their stance on abortion. The candidates will be individually questioned for 15 minutes apiece about their support and records on abortion and access to contraception, according to The New York Times. Sixteen of the 23 Democratic candidates will attend the forum on the 22nd of this month in South Carolina. And more are expected to join. Major names already attending include Senators uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Both Harris and Warren have 100% pro-choice voting records. And these days, according to Planned Parenthood's uh, approval um, rating, uh, that would have to include infanticide. Former Vice President uh, Joe Biden, who has been dealing with criticism over his decision to reverse his support for the Hyde Amendment, will also attend. Biden supported the amendment, which restricts the use of federal funds for abortion. It was intended to be a compromise uh, that those who oppose abortion would not have to underwrite it. It's been in place for decades, going as far as to say that he was the uh, odd man out of the Democratic Party due to his limited support for abortion in 2006. He was pro-life, uh, but recognized that he needed to become pro-choice in order to rise in his party. At the time, Biden credited the remark to his opposition to public funding of abortion and partial birth abortion. After several contradictory statements, the former vice presidential aide clarified that the Delaware senator now no longer supports the Hyde Amendment, saying that the decision was not about politics. Oh, really? We're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Welcome to the second hour of the program. Well, the Trump administration unveiled this week a final rule that will dramatically improve workers' ability to access health insurance of their choice. My next guest, Robert Moffat, writes in the Daily Signal that the new rule will significantly expand the permitted uses of tax-advantaged health reimbursement accounts, or HRAs. Uh, these special employer-based accounts, in which funds can be rolled over year to year, are used by employees to cover medical expenses, including out-of-pocket costs and services uncovered by uh, traditional insurance. But with this rule, for the first time in the history of these tax-free accounts, the administration would allow employees to use them to pay 
premiums for individual health insurance. Now, this change will not only expand health insurance coverage, but will also lower health care costs. Joining us to talk about that is Bob Moffitt. He is senior fellow with Health Policy Studies, specializing in health care and entitlement programs and particularly uh, Medicare, Medicaid as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you, Judy. Now, we're hearing about this um, health reimbursement account improvement. Can you explain to us um, the difference from how it exists today and what difference it will make uh, for those who would use it um, on the 1st of January 2020 when it takes effect? Sure. Uh, Today, we have health reimbursement accounts. What they are is they're special accounts. There's several accounts. Uh, There's health savings accounts, flexible spending accounts, health reimbursement accounts. Health reimbursement accounts are employer-sponsored accounts that are used by employees. Uh, They're tax-advantaged plan uh, accounts. In other words, they're tax-free from from the standpoint of the employer. Uh, And workers and their families use these health reimbursement accounts to offset medical expenses. Uh, Those medical expenses could include co-payments, deductibles, out-of-pocket medical costs, that uh, costs uh, uh, for medical treatments and procedures that an insurance plan, the plan uh, may not cover at the place of work. Um, so a variety of different things uh, they can be used for. Uh, uh, I've had them in myself. I think they're very, very, they're very, very effective for handling out-of-pocket costs. What Trump has done is um, his team at HHS and the Department of Treasury have looked very closely at the law about how these tax-advantaged health reimbursement accounts can be used. And what he's done is he's made a decision uh, in the form of a regulation now that workers and their families could use the employer contributions, which are tax-free, to the health reimbursement accounts, that workers could use that to buy health insurance on their own. Uh, now, this is particularly valuable for workers in small businesses. Uh, for example, if the small business owner can't afford to offer a standard group health insurance plan, uh, you know that's oftentimes difficult for uh, uh, an employer who has maybe five to ten workers, it's just very difficult to do that. Uh, What they could do is they could open a health reimbursement account and make a contribution, uh, you know, on a monthly basis, say $350 or $400 a month into the account, and the employee could, you know, also uh, use that money, uh, could match that money, and they could buy a health insurance plan. The significance of this is this is the first time, as I mentioned in the op-ed, this is the first time where employers can make, in effect, a tax-free defined contribution uh, for individual health insurance outside of the place of work. And this could have a significant um, role in reversing the decline that we're seeing in health care, uh, health coverage, rather, among small business employers. That is exactly right. Uh, If you look at the data on this, this relief is really crucial uh, for workers and their families who are in small businesses. Now, as you know, small businesses make up the bulk of the American economy. Uh, But, you know, frankly, in uh, in the last eight years, certainly with the enactment of Obamacare, the 
very fragile condition of health insurance coverage among small business has worsened. Um, a lot of small businesses no longer can afford to offer health insurance. They're in the small group markets, and the small group markets are heavily regulated right now by the federal government. So, for example, for little firms that have less than 25 workers, the number or the percentage of businesses offering health insurance fell dramatically uh, from roughly 44% of all those firms in 2010 to only uh, 30% in 2018. That's a very, very big loss. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what this, what Trump is doing is throwing the small businesses kind of a giant life preserver to use the tax-free um, health reimbursement accounts uh, to help their, their workers get some coverage. Now, the rule has the potential of not only expanding coverage, but as I pointed out in uh, my op-ed, it could also uh, in, expand the employee's choice uh, of health plans. Uh, as as many of your listeners know, if you work for a small business, chances are you don't have any more than one health plan choice. Well, let's say, for example, that you don't like your your employer's plan. Let's say you don't like the way uh, the employer's plan provides benefits. You don't like the provider network, for example. It doesn't do what you need uh, to be what you need. It doesn't provide the kind of options that you need for either hospitalization or clinics or specialists or whatever. Well, then you might say, well, okay, I'm going to turn down my employer's plan. And if you do that, what this new rule will do is say the employer can contribute up to $1,800 a year uh, tax-free. Uh, and of course, it, 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 that, that amount will be indexed to inflation. So it's going to go up beyond 1800 year by year. But then uh, you may want to buy, for example, a, a short-term limited duration plan, which you can, uh, which you can roll over uh, for every three years. In other words, you can renew it up to three years. Well, those plans are much cheaper than the Obamacare plans, and they're often cheaper than a lot of employment-based health insurance plans. Uh, so, you know, the, the families will get the coverage. They'll get certainly get the catastrophic catastrophic coverage. And these plans, uh, generally speaking, even though they don't have the kind of uh, pre-existing condition protections and so on, they all, well, many of them do. Uh, they're governed by state law, but nevertheless, uh, they are less expensive and the employees will have options to, to get coverage that they would not otherwise get. And again, this takes effect January 1st, 2020. Is there yeah. any possibility of it being opposed by Congress or is this, this is going to happen? Yeah, well, I mean, in order to oppose it, first of all, I, I think, you know, there's only two ways to oppose it. One is to say that the president uh, and his uh, secretary of the Treasury and his secretary of Health and Human Services and the secretary of Labor, secretary of Labor is responsible for regulations governing employment-based health insurance. The argument would have to be that they have exceeded the law. In other words, they've gone beyond what is permissible under under existing law i think that's unlikely <clears throat> they've been uh, this uh, was announced actually for the first time in october of uh, 2018 actually it was october 2018 they first announced they were going to do this and so they've been working you know pretty pretty diligently to make sure that their 
their I's are dotted and their, their T's are crossed. I don't think that there's going to be a good legal argument. I'm not saying that they won't file suit. I think, I think liberal Democrats will file suit on principle, I mean, right away. As far as Congress is concerned, obviously, uh, they would have to, I mean, I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi could block this in the House, that she's got the votes, maybe. But I don't see how any way that this could have ever, ever survive a Senate, uh, a Republican Senate uh, deliberation. And, of course, even if somehow or other uh, liberal Democrats in the Senate were to prevail they would have to overcome a presidential veto. So I think that this is in place between now and 2020. Well, Bob Moffitt, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah. One point, though. Yeah. It's a regulation. It's not legislation. So ultimately, if you want permanent change, you have to change the law. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Appreciate it. All right. Again, Bob Moffitt is a senior fellow with the Health Policy Studies, specializing in health care and entitlement programs at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with author Joel Fitzpatrick, happens to be a pastor and author of Between Us Guys, life-changing conversations for dads and sons. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, studies have indicated that boys are more likely to be violent, unable to express their emotions than girls. There's also discussion going on about toxic masculinity, leading to a pent-up aggression and frustration, isolation, problematic relationships, violence, anger, and it goes on and on and on. It's clear that raising boys today requires a new definition of what it means to be a man. It's more important than ever for fathers to be role models and have gospel-centered conversations with their sons about becoming a man. Well, in the new book, Between Us Guys, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons, my next guest, author Joel Fitzpatrick, shares how dads are given an incredible opportunity to be the primary influence in their children's lives by inviting conversations about every aspect of life, like family, girls, love, defending others, failure, strength, heaven, and much, much more. The author shows fathers how to pass down the message of Christ to the next generation, redefining what manliness means through the lens of the gospel. He discusses how television, the Internet, social media, gaming culture have all taken away from quality time spent between fathers and sons. And he gives dads the tools they need to have intentional relationship building conversations with their sons. He urges dads not to shy away from hard subjects, but to focus on the freedom Christians have in Christ rather than a moralistic message. Well, my guest is Joel Fitzpatrick. He has served as an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church with a focus on youth and family. He received his um, Master's in Divinity from Westminster Seminary in California. He's the co-author of Mom, Dad, What Sex? and contributed chapters to the Sinner and Saints devotional, 60 Days in the Psalms. He lives in Southern California with his wife and two children, joins us today to talk about a very small volume that has a lot of really big uh, ideas to help dads in connecting with their sons. Joel Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, I love that we are in the wake of Father's Day when uh, much attention has been given to the relationship that men have with their children in general. Your book focuses primarily on the relationships that uh, fathers uh, can and should have with their sons. Now, how has having conversations with your own sons prepared and equipped you to write this book to help other fathers in that area? Yeah, um, this actually was really integral to me writing this book 
when I first had uh, or got the idea to write the, the book, uh, I went and talked to my son, Colin, who is uh, who was at the time about nine. Now he's uh, he's 12. And uh, I asked him, like, look, bud, would you mind if we have these conversations? And then would you be willing to give me feedback on our conversation so that we can actually produce something together that we can benefit other people with? So my son was actually he, – he really should be listed as the co-author to this book because hmm. he gave me so much wise uh, insight and feedback, but – our own conversations began to build and the relationship of trust began to build. And that then gave birth to this book. I know for many men, it's a challenge to consider that their sons are really interested in engaging conversation at all, or that the fathers have much to say that will help their sons along. What do you say to the man who perhaps lacks the confidence that he's the guy to convey really important truths to their sons? Yeah, um, I would say to any dad out there who's questioning that part of their role as a father, whether they have the wisdom or the insight, um, I would say to you, dear brother, like, so much of the Bible is written in the terms of conversations. Uh, You can pick up your Bible and begin to read and see things that you can use to speak with your son about. Um, Also, you've been called by God and given this wonderful, glorious gift of a a little man who you get to help shape and form. And then lastly, I'd say, brother, if you are a believer in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit at work inside of you, who is helping to shape and form you into the man who you need to be for your son um, and for your daughter, if you have a daughter. And so just go for it. You'll make mistakes. You absolutely will. I did. Every dad does. But the beauty is, is when you start to have these sorts of small conversations with your sons, then what ends up happening is you have a lifetime to have these conversations because you've built a foundation of trust between you and your son that will that will benefit your son throughout the rest of his life as well. You know, I love that you describe these as a series of small conversations over the course of a lifetime. It doesn't have to start out with the big issues at the very beginning. But right. when you engage in these meaningful conversations, then when you move toward perhaps the more profound issues, it's not as awkward because you have established a rapport with this young man um, that that sort of gives you the the right, if you will, to be heard on these more difficult issues. Right. I mean, the reality is, is nobody likes to be talked at, right? Um, nobody likes a monologue. Uh, and so if we frame all of the conversations that we're having with our sons, um, especially ones over vitally important issues like sexuality, like how to defend other people, like their relationship with God, if we have those only in the context of a monologue, of, a, of us talking at our sons for 40 minutes, of course our sons aren't going to want to hear us. <laughs> um, we don't want to listen to somebody do that most of the time. And so having small, impactful conversations that are high-value conversations, um, but really encourage our sons to be drawn out to talk, um, build the level of trust that then gives us gives us the, the ability to continue to have these conversations when our boys have their own boys. Um, this is what happened with me and my dad. Now, my dad wasn't a huge talker, but he and I still had a relationship that we had built over the years so that now when I struggle with something with my kids, 
I call my dad and I say, dad, like, this is what's happening. Please help me think about it. And he usually has some little nugget of wisdom to give me. And that's, that's the beauty of starting to have these small conversations. It benefits you through your whole life. Now, the book we're talking about, Between Us Guys, was written for boys, dads and boys, between the ages of 6 and 12. You divide every chapter into a section that leads the reader into a uh, through the cycle of what God intended, um, what the fall broke, what Jesus has redeemed, what heaven will restore, and so on. So it's kind of a systematic approach uh, to engaging in conversation with uh, young sons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this is a really important thing. Um, we need to build a worldview for our sons that makes sense, not just um, not just of the fact that we all live in a difficult world, right? Um we all have this desire to be somebody, to be something more than what we actually are. And it's because we were created to be that way. That's a, that's a part of us that's hardwired that way. But of course, the sin bro- sin's come into the world and has broken those things. It's broken our relationships. It's broken the way we use our money. And helping our sons make sense of that, to have a category for that, Outside of just, well, that's that's just the way it is, son. Um, you know, but giving them a real category for that is so helpful. And then coming to see that Jesus, um, Jesus not only, uh, he didn't just die for our sins, but he also lived for our sins. He lived perfectly in our place so that when we believe in him, we have his righteousness. Um, and then that that beauty, that love that God has for us turns us to love our neighbors and to love the world around us in a way that actually brings about life change in the people around us and in our own sons' lives. And so that's why I've categorized the book in that way or structured it in that way, is so that we're constantly walking through issues so that when there's an issue that isn't addressed in a book, um, we actually have a category for how to think about it, a mm-hmm. worldview to pass it through. Now, how do you know when it's the right time to have certain conversations with your sons? Where Again, we're talking about um, young boys and preteens. Yeah. Um, a lot of it has to do with situations, at least uh, in my life as a dad. Now, I, I need to say this. I'm not the perfect dad, right? Um, <laughs> we have one perfect father. That's God, our father. Yes. Um, I'm not, I'm not the perfect dad, um, but my, my, uh, in my work as a pastor and in my uh, own parenting my son, what I've tried to do is look for indicators in his life that he's ready to have these discussions. So when my son starts asking me about his body, then I know it's a good time to start talking to him about his body. When I notice him starting to, to like, uh, notice girls and women then I know, okay, it's time for me to start to start working into this. Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful is when you think about where your son is at, just in the general progression of normal boys. Um, the funny thing is most boys, they start noticing girls when they turn about 10, some a little bit younger, some a little bit older. But 9 to 10, that's usually a good time to start talking to them about girls. Um, most boys want to use money to buy things. So helping them have a, a context as soon as they're like, hey, dad, I'd like to buy this. Um, as soon as you start handing them money to buy things, 
that's a great time to start talking to them about it. I think the point is, is just to be plugged into your kid's life, which happens through the vehicle of normal conversations. Son, how was your day? What are you struggling with? What happened with school? What happened in this area? What's going on with your friends? Good questions that lead them to talk, then give you a clue into where they're at and what sorts of conversations to have with them. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Joel Fitzpatrick. His book is titled Between Us Guys, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation with Joel Fitzpatrick. His book is titled Between Us Guys, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons. And it's a book that's written to help dads engage in uh, conversation with their sons ages 6 to 12. Uh, each chapter divided into sections that lead the reader through a series of conversations that are meaningful and will certainly stand the test of time. Now, how would you encourage fathers to carve out what their sons, um, I should say, carve out time with their sons uh, in this effort to engage in these kinds of meaningful conversations in light of all of the distractions, the, the entertainment that's around us that can rob us of the very time uh, and attention that's necessary for these kinds of engaging conversations. Yeah, I would say to dads uh, a couple of things. One, um, I'm a working dad. So I work in construction, which means my day starts at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I end when I'm finished. <laughs> I also <laughs> preach on the weekends, so I know what it is to be a tired dad. I get that, dad. Um, so really capitalizing on little moments, um, for me, what it looks like is I take my kids out to, to yogurt. They enjoy frozen yogurt. They enjoy ice cream. I take them out to those things um, periodically, once a week, something like that. Every day, I'm plugged into their lives. Uh, We either go on a walk together or we sit down around the dinner table as a family, and nobody's allowed to have cell phones at the dinner table. And we just sit and we talk about each other's day. It also means that I give up my own time and doing the things that I enjoy doing to be dialed into the things that my son enjoys. So my son loves to fish. Um, I'm not so hot on fishing, Um, but I've learned how to fish now because Mm -hmm. my son loves it. Um, My son loves to play video games. That means that, yes, dads, um, I stop my day when I'm exhausted and busy and have a million things to do, and I play video games with my son periodically. The point is, is that I move into his space and prove that I'm trustworthy in his space with the things that he's interested in. I show him by my actions that I'm interested in his life. And then during those times, we have these sorts of conversations. Um, Sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just talk about the day because I can tell he's tired and he doesn't want to have a deep conversation. But this this is this point of just intentionality, capitalizing on little moments, moving into your son's life. To, to identify with where he's at and the things that he finds important. Those things build trust. 
and trust allows us to open up to each other. And I think that's one of the things that I would say to the dads who are out there listening to this who are busy. Yeah, one of the things I especially appreciate about the book is the fact that it's designed for the conversations that take place uh, in a variety of different activities. It's not just sitting down in the living room, okay, son, we're going to have a, a heart-to-heart talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you, right. you, as you're going, walking along the way, you engage your son. Now, if there is a dad involved in the life, uh, if there isn't a dad involved in the life of a boy, could this book, Between Us Guys, be used by a grandfather or an uncle or another male mentor who wants to speak? speak into the life of a young man. Absolutely. Uh, This book was written to be used in any context by any person who's involved in a young man's life. And so that may be a youth pastor, that may be a trusted uncle, that may be a grandfather. Um, It may even be a single mother um, who is trying to Mm -hmm. learn how to shepherd her son. Um, this book is written so that anybody could pick it up and get uh, get a understanding and a grasp of how um, how boys see issues in life, and then to equip those people with the tools to be able to ask good questions, to be able to build the right context, the right worldview for their sons or for their grandsons, for that matter. Now, what would you say is the biggest hurdle, or maybe a better phrase would be blind spot for fathers who are interested in beginning this kind of gospel-centered conversation? Yeah, I think that most dads feel like they are ill-equipped, um, like they just don't know enough. And then I also, I also feel like a lot of dads walk around with kind of low-level guilt because they know they should be able to have these conversations, but then they aren't equipped to be able to have the conversations because Christianity has kind of been quarantined to Sunday. And so I would say that people like that, to dads who are out there like that, um, listen, you know, the Bible speaks to every area of our lives. The gospel impacts every area of our lives. And if that's true, if the Bible speaks to it, if the gospel impacts it, then we can help our sons in our broken ways, in in our... uh, not necessarily, you know, theologically educated ways. We can help our sons along and in seeing that God really is a God who cares not just about what happens on Sunday, but what happens every day of the week and what's happening in our hearts in those times too. So I just encourage you, brother, um, you know, don't give up, number one. Number two, Jesus takes away our guilt and shame. So don't give in to the voice that says to you, you're not good enough. Um, Brother, take up take up your this opportunity with your son. Pursue him, love him, use the means that God's given you, and have these conversations. Now, what advice do you have for a father whose son is showing signs of aggression or or violence? How can a father help a son express and process their emotions? Yeah, I think this is a this is a big issue, especially in American culture right now. Um, I would say to dads. Uh, Dads, number one, it's important to say that if your son is actually violent and hurting people, then you need to stop your son from doing that, Um, you know, uh, in whatever way that that may take place. If your son is showing aggression, um, like like self-harm, whether that's through cutting or attempted suicide or things like that, then you need to seek professional help. If If this is a son who just deals with the normal, um, the normal uh, process of testosterone being released into his system and him getting very aggressive, then I would, I would say, Dad, don't overreact. 
don't fight anger with anger. Instead, fight anger with the love of God that he's given us in this, and the restraint and self-control that's built in by the power of the Holy Spirit. And begin to talk to your son. Be a safe space for your son to, to process his emotion. Be a safe space for your son to express his anger, because anger is a very real emotion. Um, mm-hmm. Become a safe space for that, and then help your son think about how God takes those things that makes us angry and begins to redeem them through his love, through his love inside of us. That's what I'd say to a dad who is struggling with a son who, who uh, had, had issues with anger. Well, the book Between Us Guys, Life-Changing Conversations for Dads and Sons, goes into more detail, but it's very practical and can help walk a dad through just the normal course of life and making the most of the time uh, that he has uh, with his son and being intentional about making the most of that time. Joel Fitzpatrick, I thank you so much for talking with us today and for this little volume that I think will make a big difference in the lives of fathers who want to have a, a positive impact on their sons. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by New Growth Press. It's available in bookstores. As I mentioned, it's a fairly small book, but each chapter is chock full of great advice on how to raise issues that help your son recognize a biblically centered worldview and way to navigate life. And again, the book is written for relatively young boys, ages 6 through 12, Uh, Again, each chapter divided into sections that lead the reader through a cycle of what God intended, um, what the fall broke, what does that all mean, what Jesus has redeemed, what heaven is going to restore, how we respond. It offers uh, prompts for conversations, can read, uh, be read directly by fathers and sons if that's an approach that works best for your um, your household. But the intention is for conversations to take place while participating uh, in activities together. Uh, and again, the book is titled Between Us Guys. It offers suggestions on things to do and uh, and all of that. So in the wake of Father's Day, this might be a great resolution moving forward for dads who might need a little bit of encouragement and help. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, I talked about what's happening in Hong Kong as they're opposed to the anti-extradition or to the extradition uh, that has been introduced in the legislature. It's been suspended, at least temporarily. It hasn't been jettisoned, so the protests are continuing. But there's been a record number of demonstrations in the streets of Hong Kong to protest the uh, proposed extradition law. And the mainland Chinese government is all also a part of that, a, China, a Christian song has, that was penned back in 1974 has become sort of the unofficial anthem, which I thought was an interesting element to all of this. Christian groups in the autonomous territory of southeastern China of approximately 7.4 million people, a former British colony, again we're talking about Hong Kong, have been singing Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, the book, the uh, song rather, was written by Linda Stassen Benjamin while protesting and marching in the streets. This has been the song. Uh, it's catchy, it's a uh, a simple melody, it's popular around the world, has been translated into many languages, and it has become the sort of unofficial anthem of this protest. Well, the demonstrators have also been protesting against police brutality. Authorities apparently have a, a distaste for the Christian song, as evidenced by um, one sign a protester carried, which read, Stop using baton, or we sing hallelujah to the Lord. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, numerous clips of protesters singing the hymn have been posted on Twitter and other social media as well. About two million protesters have taken to the streets to express their opposition over this proposed law that would send suspected criminals to be extradited to mainland China to be prosecuted and to demand that the China-backed Hong Kong chief executive um, uh, resign for permitting this uh, to even make it onto the, um, the docket. Reports indicate that although further action on the contested extradition law have been suspended, it hasn't been com- completely scrapped, and so it uh, continues. Well, the presence of Christians and others singing on the front lines of the protests were helpful in making the demonstration look more like an outdoor worship service rather than an organized riot the government said it had to, to crack down on uh, to bring back law and order. That's according to Shanghaiist, which is... Um, a local uh, newspaper uh, noting, uh, calling the 1974 song the unofficial anthem of the uh, uprising. Meanwhile, China has been censoring the Hong Kong protest demonstrations on the mainland when uh, an Internet user there uh, keys Hong Kong um, into the, uh, the the system, China's largest uh, search engine. No news of the protest turns up. So they're making quite a splash uh, and certainly frustrating those in charge in mainland China, but making a statement in Hong Kong. In other news, you might recall in June of 2015, Dylan Roof, a 21-year-old white supremacist from North Carolina, drove to Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, committed one of the worst shocking mass murders in American history. John Stone Street and David Carlson wrote about it and po- reminded us that after entering the church, Roof asked to see the Reverend Clementa Pickney, the church pastor, and then joined a Bible study with members of the congregation. They welcomed him, but Roof pulled out a pistol and started shooting. He killed nine of the, the uh, Christian brothers and sisters in cold blood, leaving another alive to tell everyone what had happened. He was hunted down, he was captured, and eventually was convicted of numerous state and federal charges. He currently awaits death by lethal injection. What many found as shocking as the killings themselves was the reaction to Roof by many of the victims' families. At this year's Wilberforce Weekend, Christian filmmaker Brian Ivey said that he had heard about the Emanuel AME shooting while on his honeymoon in Mexico. One morning while he was out on the balcony, he said he heard his wife Amanda sobbing. Nine people just got shot in their Bible study, she said, in Charleston, South Carolina. And then she went on to describe the massacre. Well, Brian was stunned. Then she looked at him. Uh, He relates and said, you don't understand. They're forgiving him. The family members are forgiving the murderer in court. On her laptop, she had watched, stunned like so many, uh, Nadine Collier, the daughter of uh, Ethel Lance, tell Roof, the shooter, I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me, you hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you and I forgive you. Then Anthony Thompson, husband of Myra Thompson, told Roof, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, to change your ways. Well, in the early 90s... um, Uh, The writer of the article was shepherding a Baptist church in rural New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, In those days, he lived with various families in the community. One uh, family owned a a meat packing uh, conglomerate. But anyway, he said that uh, his new bride said, I hope whoever tells this story one day doesn't skip the forgiveness part because I think God just showed up. Well, as it turns out, Ivy's prayer was answered because he's the one who's been tasked with telling this amazing story of tragedy, suffering, forgiveness, and hope in a new documentary called Emmanuel, the untold story of the victims and survivors of the Charleston Church shooting. It will be in theaters uh, this week, the 17th and the 19th only. It's not clear 
unclear to me if there are showings in this uh, area, but you might want to check that out. Um, you need to see the film, whether it's in theaters or later by DVD. But Brian, whom you might remember from his first film, The Dropbox, has done something special. According to those who have already seen the film, the cinematography is beautiful. The music is excellent. But more than that, he managed to tell the story by getting out of the way. The racial history of Charleston, the sacredness of a Bible study violated, the criticism that family members received for offering forgiveness, the overall cultural tension already present when this evil act was per- uh, perpetrated and how, in the end, forgiveness was the final word. Again, the uh, title of the film, which is out in some theaters, not altogether clear. It's going to be in our area, but it's definitely worth seeing, again, Emmanuel, the untold story of the victims and survivors of the Charleston Church shooting. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Lori Schumacher, Surrendered Heart, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.